at ease and this put you at ease, but you'll notice I've got two different shoes on today. I'd like to have a real great athletic story about this foot, but I don't. Uh, I just uh, tangled with a surgeon, and he had the knife, and I had the toes. <laughs> Guess who wins? <laughs> We've all played rock, paper, scissors, haven't we? <laughs> it's great to be here today, and uh, one thing I need to correct, I have never been a seminary president, but I've been a dean a couple of times, and uh, I've successfully avoided presidencies throughout my life. <laughs> We're going to look at a passage of Scripture that uh, is is the key to a church without walls. What does a church look like that doesn't have walls? Because in uh, just a few weeks, we're going to be a church without walls. So what does that church look like? It's found in Matthew chapter 28, uh, verses 18 to 20. If, you've, if you're using a pew Bible, it's page 706, page 706. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Now, if I use a little different translation, please excuse me. I've got a, a Greek Testament here with me that I, I like because it's, a, it's kind of a comfort blanket for me. That's got to be crazy, isn't it? Yeah, okay. But I, I, I like to have it with me just so I can look at the text in, in its original form while we're, we're considering it together. Things have really changed, haven't they, over the last 11 years. Tuesday is the 11th anniversary of uh, 9-11. And our lives have changed uh, dramatically. Margaret and I travel a lot in our careers, and uh, we've noticed uh, security is job one wherever you go. Flew through London about a year ago on our way to Athens, Greece uh, for a teaching job. And all of a sudden we had to go through uh, security again, <laughs> even though we were just transit pa uh, passengers coming through the airport. Uh, and so security has become very important. Our economy seems to be kind of on a roller coaster, up and down, up and down. And then, of course, New York skyline is dramatically changed. It brings up a question in my mind, so what remains? What do we as Christians have that remains steadfast and sure in times like this? I think there are several things that remain. I think the blessed hope of the believer remains. The fact that the Lord Jesus Christ is coming back again. I love that verse in Titus 2 verse 13 says, We look for the blessed hope and the glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. And then the mission of a church has not changed. It's our job to reach the world. It's our job to worship the Lord as we have this morning. And finally, our personal lives do not change as believers because we have the same commitment. And the Gospel of Matthew reminds us that that commitment is to make disciples, to multiply our lives, to give away our lives, to give away our faith to others. I want to focus on that task of how do we multiply our lives? How do we give away our faith? Uh, Fifty-five years ago this summer, uh, I was a very nervous bridegroom. Uh, Margaret didn't seem to be nervous at all, but man, I was a wreck. And uh, after everything settled down and uh, I had quit my job as a telephone lineman and gone back to college, uh, we, she was teaching in the Chicago area and I was uh, in my junior year at Wheaton College uh, when we got married. Uh, we sat there and looked at each other one day and say, what's next? What do we do now? <laughs> I 
And we realized, as every couple does at some point in their life, you have to create a mission statement for your life, for your marriage. What are we going to do in our life? And Margaret and I came to these, these verses when we created our mission statement. And we made it very simple so even I could remember it. <laughs> mission statement is this, make disciples. Just make disciples. Whatever we do, we'll make disciples. Neither of us had any idea what that involved. We didn't know it would mean something over 35 moves in our life. We never realized that we'd spend over half of our married life living overseas, being professor and preacher and teacher, and Margaret created a whole women's ministry in England that's still going on there. We never realized what that meant. But we knew one thing, that wherever we were, we had one job. That was to make disciples. And the Lord helps us in this passage of Scripture to realize how to do it. To realize that discipleship is not about a program. Discipleship is about people. Discipleship is about investing in the lives of other people. And he gives us, uh, the, 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 the Gospel of Matthew gives us this little quotation by Jesus, only three verses long. But it has four statements, and they're all introduced with the little word, all. Each of these four statements is introduced with the little word, all. In verse 18, for instance, he says, all authority is given to me. I was studying this passage earlier this morning, and, and it struck me as I looked at it that uh, each of these three verses that we have begins with a verb. A friend of mine many years ago said, verbs are the muscles of the language. I love that phrase because they're, they're what, what makes movement in our language. And this is one of the most active statements I have ever read in Scripture. The, you, you can see the picture. The disciples have gone back to Galilee. If you've ever been to Galilee, there's a lot of rural country in Galilee. There are a lot of hillsides and a lot of, uh, of, of space around the Sea of Galilee, even now in its very developed state. And, and you can realize it's a little less pressure than, than Jerusalem was. And they're sitting there waiting for Jesus. And the picture we have in verse 18 is a picture of Jesus striding in. As he came walking in, it says, as he came to them. <laughs> and you get this incredible pictures. Whoa, Jesus is here. And Jesus is walking up to them. And as he walks in, he's talking. And he says, all authority is given to me. Well, they've been watching this for three years. Remember that someone said, and it's recorded in Matthew chapter 7, that when Jesus taught, he taught with authority. When he commanded the demons, he did so with authority. Even the demons obey him, it says in Mark 1.27. And then another passage says he has the authority to judge because he is the Son of Man. Jesus' life just seemed to convey this authority. There's a world of difference, isn't there, between authority and power. Uh, I have uh, authority at the university every Tuesday morning for one hour and every Thursday morning for an hour. And I have 30 rather recalcitrant freshmen sitting in front of me. In teaching freshmen, I've learned some very practical things. If you speak softly, most of them never wake up. <laughs> but but I, have, uh, I, I tend to have classes full of athletes. For some reason, I get the athletes at Sacred Heart. And in the front row this year, I've got these gigantic football players. I finally said to one guy the other day, what in the world do you weigh? He said, well, I weigh 270 pounds. I would hate to arm wrestle that guy, or leg wrestle him, or toe wrestle him. <laughs> and I have absolutely no power to make him do anything. 
because he could kind of squash me with one step. But I have authority. I have authority to say to him that on Thursday this week, you will present a paper to me on what Plato thought about democracy. (laughs) And he'll do it because he wants to play football next week. (laughs) I have an amazing amount of authority. And Jesus picks that word. He could have used dunamis, power, but he picks authority instead. He says, all authority is given to me. And you have all the authority you need to make disciples. Boy, that's great stuff to know, isn't it? Aren't you glad? We were young missionaries. We were living in central Germany. Well, we were living actually in southern Germany, right near the Black Forest. And uh, I was starting out as a member of an evangelistic team. My job was to organize the means. I was the worship leader, and I had my little trombone, and we were running around. Germans love trombones. And, and, uh, and I had my little trombone running around blowing my trombone all over Germany. And then the worst possible thing happened. The evangelist on that team, who was a wonderful preacher, went back to Canada. And the next day I had a call from a pastor. He said, you're supposed to be here for 10 days to preach every night in German starting next month. I'll tell you, talk about a cold sweat. Wow, I was scared to death. And I remember sitting in the back seat of our little Volkswagen where my buddy driving and I'm typing sermons to beat the band, you know. And we got to that first night and we were in the, in the upper room above a bar. And you could smell cigar smoke and beer, everything coming up through the floor of this bar. You know, there are a couple hundred people there. And, and uh, then they, the, the person who was leading the meeting said, well, Wayne, it's time for you to preach. I stood up to preach. I've never been so frightened in all my life, either before or since. And I was shaking like a leaf. I have a picture of the candles. They had the candles on a little table, and they were shaking like this as I was speaking. And I prepared this sermon, and I preached it with all my heart, and ten minutes later I was done. Uh, what do I do now? So I preached it again, you know. <laughs> and when I got done with it the second time, I thought, now what do I do? Well, I'd gone to Wheaton College, and I'd seen Billy Graham a lot of times, and I knew what he'd do. He'd just tell people to come forward and get saved. I thought, well, here we go, you know. So I said, no, I'm sure there's nobody here that wants to get saved tonight. But uh, if, if you, by mistake, want to get saved tonight, uh, uh, I'm sure nobody wants to do this. But if you do, uh, stand up and come forward, will you? And Jean, one of the women with us on the team, will pray with you. And with this, about halfway back on that side, Erica Reinhardt stood up. And Erica walked all alone down that aisle. And that night, Erica became a child of God. I'll never forget that night, the longest day I lived. Because Erica later married a young man, and they became the only Bible-believing family in that whole community for many years. And I've often thought, you know, I didn't have any power to do that. But the Lord had the authority to do it. And so we have the goal of making disciples. Secondly, the second all is in verse 19. And again, he starts with a verb. He says, as you are going, make disciples of all people. In the process of going, it's kind of a logical statement, really, because all of us are in the process of going. We're all moving all over the place. If you would look at this crowd tomorrow morning at 9 o'clock, we'd be in hundreds of different places across these communities, wouldn't we? Because we're all moving in our little orbits of activity throughout the day and some of our big orbits of activity. I may be in a classroom. You may be in a store. You may be in an office building. You may be in a bank. But we are all going. And as we go, 
We make disciples. And the second all is here, of all peoples. Interesting phrase. He doesn't use the word nations, which our translation on the screen uses. He uses a word for ethnicity, ta ethne, of all ethnicities. No one is excluded from this. If God is creator of all, as Genesis teaches us, then he is Lord of all. And all people need to come to him in order to be saved. When God calls Abraham, he said, I will make you a light to all the nations, all the peoples. In Isaiah 45, 22 is one of my favorite verses. It says this, um, there's one God and one Savior, therefore look to me and be saved all the ends of the earth. Three or four years ago, Margaret and I were teaching in, uh, in China in an underground seminary uh, in southern China. And um, I got to that passage in Isaiah and I wrote these words on the board. One God, one Savior, look to me and be saved. Just that sort of bullet uh, breakdown of this verse. And with this, a knock comes at the door and each Chinese class has a, like a monitor, a, a president of the class. And I said to our monitor, who was a woman named Rebecca, check the doorway and see who was there. And she said, came back and said, it's the police. They want to break up the seminary. There are a thousand underground seminaries in the underground churches in China, one million full-time Christian workers. And they just keep coming out of these underground seminaries. And the government's trying to break up as many as they can, and Kunming, the city we were in, was particularly full of them, and so they were trying to break up the one we were in. And, and uh, so we hid all over the building, Margaret and I and all of our students. And for a few minutes, the police came, and they walked through the room, and they said, this looks like a school. This is not good. And they said to Rebecca, our, our monitor, what do you teach here? She said, English. They said, really? Is that English on the board? Now think about this. Most of those police have had five or six years of English in school. And they couldn't read monosyllabic words. The Lord blinded them. <laughs> and a few minutes later, Rebecca came and said, okay, they're gone. Let's go back to work. And we went back to work and talked for another couple of hours. But I, I noticed that that verse, I can never get out of my mind. All people, all people, even those police, need to know about the Lord. And I pray that somehow the Lord will have gotten that into their minds through all the confusion of the language and, and that they would understand it. There are no blinders allowed. In a secular, secularist society, one of the reasons I teach at a university is because I can witness for the Lord every day in class. Um, if they don't want me to witness, all they got to do is fire me. You know, at my age, I'd be glad. <laughs> it's true of young and old. It's true of rich and poor. Many years ago, we were living in Manchester. I was working on my doctor in Manchester, England. And, and uh, our, in the little church that we were in, there was a woman named Ruth. And Ruth said to me one day, you got to meet my husband because he's not a Christian. And I said, oh, yeah, really? Why? And she said, well, he's, you really got to meet him. He's a veterinarian. So I met George. And George and I struck up a friendship. And uh, I saw a lot of blood and gore just uh, in that friendship. He would call me in for surgery, so I had to hang out and talk to him while he was operating on animals, various kinds. Um, <laughs> and, and, and George said, you've got to realize, Wayne, I was raised an atheist, and I'm going to stay an atheist until I die. I'm going to be faithful to my family and be an atheist. I said, okay, George, works for me. Uh, let's hang out together and see what happens. <laughs> I'll never forget, he came to me one day on one Christmas day, and he said, 
hey, tomorrow I've got to go to the dog track and test the dogs for drugs. Think about that one for a minute. And he said, uh, I've got to be there for eight hours. Do you want to go with me? <laughs> so on the day after Christmas, which is Boxing Day in England, here I am sitting in the car with George for eight hours trying to keep warm drinking lashes of coffee. And uh, that was December 26th, if I'm not mistaken. January 19th, Ruth comes to our house to bring her son to our son's birthday party and says, can you come and see George tomorrow? He wants to talk to you. When I walked in after I got home from the university that night, George came in in just a minute and he said, I got a question to ask you. How do I come to know Jesus Christ? So from 1971, January 19th, 1971, until this day, I've been discipling George. And George and I have become very, very close. And I knew that the Lord sent me to Manchester University to reach George with the gospel. All people. There's another all. It's in verse 19. Teach them to keep, it says in the Greek, or to obey or to do all the things that I have commanded you. Um, Baptize them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and teach them to observe everything I command you. That baptismal phrase is, is almost a throwaway. We, we use it all the time in baptismal services in our churches. And we don't think much about it. But it's, it's, it's a devastating verse. It's a powerful verse. Teach them to baptize in the name, one, of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. One name, three persons. And the whole doctrine of the Trinity is summarized in that experience. And a person is committing to this as they are baptized, that they have come to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, who is God the Son, and in the God the Father, and God the Holy Spirit. And then teach them to observe everything I have told you. Paul called this the whole truth of God. Jude, in his little book, called it the whole counsel of God. In 2 Timothy 2.2, Paul tells us how to do this. He says, The things you heard of me in the presence of many witnesses entrust to reliable people who are able to teach others also. Multiply your life in the life of others. Each year, uh, I try to get two or three guys, and I meet them once a week in discipleship for the course of that year. And one of the guys I've been meeting for three years since we moved, came back from China to live here in, in Connecticut. And we meet every Saturday morning at a little diner in, uh, in Bridgeport. And sitting next to us is a, a, a Portuguese guy in his uh, 60s, Joe. And Joe and uh, my buddy and I have gotten to be very close friends over the years because we have breakfast together every Saturday morning. Joe is an amazing guy. He raises his own tomatoes. He brings them to the diner, you know, and he shares his tomatoes with us. And we have wonderful breakfast at, uh, at the diner every, every Saturday morning. But uh, after we have breakfast together, uh, my buddy and I uh, read a few verses together and pray together and uh, pray for each other, and then we go on our way. Now, for three years, Joe's been watching this. Every morning, he's been watching this. Two weeks ago, he, he leans over in the middle of my breakfast and says, Hey, Wayne, can I ask you something? I said, sure, what is it? He said, would you pray for me? He said, I'm starting a course of treatment that I, really frightens me. It's going to be very traumatic and very upsetting to my body. Would you pray for me? And so my buddy and I just leaned over and we, we prayed for Joe. Then we went ahead and finished our breakfast, had our little Bible study, and then, as we always do, we prayed at the end. But when I prayed for my friend, I also prayed for Joe, who was still sitting there. And I said, Lord... Again, I, I just lift up Joe to you, and I pray that you'll give Joe strength and, and help him to know that you're with him as he goes through this terrible period of, of treatment in the next few months. I opened my eyes. He was just pouring with tears, this 60-some-year-old man. 
And I thought, you know, the Lord put us here in this diner all these years just to reach Joe. Incidentally, the owner of the diner has also become a little stronger in his faith, I think, as a result of this. But, but Joe is the guy the Lord put us there for. All people. All the people. No exceptions. And then the final one is in verse, verse 20. Or verse 19, the, 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 the third one right there is in verse 19. It says, and teach them everything I've commanded you. Okay, we got that one. Let's go down to the final one. It's in verse 20. Verse 20 says, and see, I am with you all the days. Again, it starts with a verb. See, look, watch out. I'm with you all the days. Scripture tells us he's with us when we pray. Aren't you glad to know that when we pray, the Lord is there with us? We have seen wonderful things happen in prayer here at Black Rock over the years. And uh, just uh, as we've had this uh, wonderful new prayer room, we've seen even more uh, things happen in in prayer. And in the new building, we're going to have another prayer room uh, because we really believe that the Lord is with us when we pray. See, I'm with you when you pray. Where two or three come together in my name, I'm with you. When we're in trouble, he's with us. Romans 8.28 says, We know in all things God works for the good of those who love him who have been called according to his purpose. In the midst of trouble, we know that he is there. We know that he is our presence, that he's there to guide us and strengthen us. He's with us all the day. I love that verse, all the days. There's never a day the Lord is not with us. That's a tremendous comfort to know that whatever happens on any day in our lives, he's there. He's there to, to strengthen us, especially as we multiply our lives in the life of other people. And I'd like to close with three applications of, these, of, these, of this principle. How do I give away my life? Who do I disciple? How do I accomplish this business of making disciples? I think the first one is fairly obvious. Fifty-five years ago this summer, Margaret and I got married. Um, I was a, a telephone lineman who had been kicked out of college uh, for a multiple number of reasons. And Margaret was this uh, stunning honors graduate who had just graduated with her teaching certificate. And uh, we got married 55 years ago this summer. And and as we got married, we realized I was going to go back and finish my college. She never dreamed it would be seven or eight more years of college before I finally got a Ph.D., but but, uh, she knew we were going to go back to college. And I said to her, Margaret, what are we going to do with our lives? We need a mission statement for our marriage. What are we going to accomplish? What's the main thing we want to do in our life? What's the one lodestar that we want to follow every day of our lives? And we went back to these verses. And we said, we're going to make disciples wherever we are. We never dreamed it would take us to China, to Africa, to most countries of Europe, all over the United States. We never dreamed that that's what it was involved. But we were going to make disciples. And we started with each other. And Margaret discipled me, and I discipled her. And we build into each other's lives. And for 55 years, we've done this. Every day we spend time in prayer together. Every day we talk about the things of the Lord together. Every day we strengthen each other as, as, we, as we grow in the Lord. And now as we come through that period of our lives when strength is weakening, we still pray with each other every day. We disciple each other. Secondly, we disciple our children. I love that verse, Matthew 5.16. Let your light so shine before men so they may see your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven. When our children were were born, we were in the process of moving to Germany. Our our daughter was 18 months old and our son was born in Germany. He's never lived in the United States. He lives in in England now. 
And we begin to disciple our kids, just pouring into their lives. As I was praying about this yesterday, the Lord kept saying one word, and I'm just going to pass it on to you. The word is listening. <laughs> Discipleship's about listening. It meant that when our son went through a time of incredible intellectual upheaval, we had to listen. Just listen. It meant when those tough days came, there was time for us to listen and to just be there as we poured our lives into our, our, our kids. And this is the, our great-grandchildren are now the sixth generation of my family that I have known personally. And so we now have a whole new generation to disciple uh, as our, as our great-grandchildren come along and they hang out with us at our house. But it's really interesting to, 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 to realize that we multiply our lives in the lives of our children. They're the only things we take to heaven with us. The only thing that will ever go to heaven with me is my kids and my grandkids and my great-grandkids. Several years ago, we were celebrating our 50th wedding anniversary. I guess it must be five years ago since it's 55 years this year. Uh, and we were in Florida, and I said to my two grandsons from England and my uh, grandson-in-law from the United States here, let me take you out for breakfast. I want to show you what I do every Saturday morning. So I took them to an IHOP, and I said, order anything on the menu. That's a dangerous thing to say to young men. <laughs> but mortgages were easier to get in those days. <laughs> and uh, as in the, in the middle of our breakfast, I turned to the two grandsons from England, one a student of aeronautical engineering, another one's a banker in, in Bristol, and I said, uh, have you guys ever been discipled? Has anybody ever done this with you? And they said, oh, yeah, our dad did it because you did it with him. It works. <laughs> I went home. I said to Margaret, let's carry on. We've only got one more generation to go. <laughs> <laughs> because we disciple our, our children. And then thirdly, we disciple our friends. One of the great things about our small group ministry here at, at BlackRock is it's a multiple discipleship experience where one-on-one, -on -one, the scripture says we're like iron sharpening iron. <laughs> we're, we're making each other, uh, helping each other to grow in the Lord Jesus Christ, and we're pouring into the lives of other people. As you go, make disciples, and the Lord will be with us every day. Now, if you'd like to know more about this, I'd urge you to contact Bob Donovan, who is our pastor of discipleship really here at BlackRock, and, and you can just uh, email him at bdonovan at brcc.org. But uh, be sure to get involved this year in a, in a small group, and be sure to start discipling at least one person, and you'll find it will enrich your life amazingly. Now, will you please stand with me as we close in prayer? And now may the God of peace, who through the blood of the everlasting covenant brought back from the dead our Lord Jesus Christ, that great shepherd of the sheep, equip each one of us with everything that we need for doing what is good. And may he work in us what is pleasing to him, through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen.